You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Sean Roberts. Dr. Roberts is an associate professor of the Practice of International Affairs and the director of the International Development Studies Program at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Dr. Roberts is an anthropologist who has studied the Uyghur people of China and Central Asia for 30 years, writing his dissertation on the Uyghurs of the China-Kazakhstan borderlands, while a PhD candidate at the University of Southern California. And he is the author of the recently published book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority, published in 2020 by Princeton University Press. Um, And then thank you for joining us, Dr. Roberts. Thank you. Um, All right, so I can jump right in, I think, to my presentation. Um, One second here. quickly spin this back up to the top. All right. Um, All right. So um, as was said, um, I I have a recently published book um, called The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority from Princeton University Press. Um, and a lot of what I'm going to talk about, but in much more detail, is, is in that book. I want very briefly, but I, I have a feeling this audience should be pretty aware of some of the things happening uh, in the Uyghur region of China now and since 2017. But I'm going to begin with a little bit of discussion of that. Um, You've probably heard of the mass internment camps and, and, uh, that are intended for re-education. Uh, and we know that there's been um, upwards of a million people going through those. But one of the things that's become clearer over the last year is there's also been significant imprisonments. Um, and starting right from the beginning in 2017, uh, 17, I think, had a 700% increase in arrests over 2016. Um, And that had already been increasing uh, since 2009 in the region. Um, And that pretty much continued uh, until very recently in 2020, we've kind of come back down to 2016 figures. But those imprisonments uh, have in particular focused on intellectuals and elites, uh, people who uh, are kind of uh, the people involved in the maintenance and production of culture. Um, And I think it's important to kind of understand that not everybody who is in a uh, carceral facility in the region is actually in an internment camp. Some of them are just in prisons. And they've been um, sentenced, very long sentences for political crimes. And you probably also know about the mass surveillance, but I think probably the most important part of this mass surveillance in the region uh, to know about is 
the database that the state has been producing um, that tracks essentially different Uyghurs' behaviors, um, their history of uh, different things, both through electronic surveillance and human surveillance. But it, it provides, if you're familiar with the um, Soviet comp concept of compromat, where the state used to keep files on people, these are now all uh, files that are electronically accessible at a checkpoint, for example. And so a lot of people uh, being flagged through that database has sent them to jail or internment. Um, but I want to kind of talk about those two aspects as cornerstones of a complex of destructive policies. I think that the camps, prisons, and mass surveillance create a situation where those not incarcerated have no possible recourse of resistance. Uh, any resistance in any form can be detected by mass surveillance and it can result in internment or imprisonment. So it's a, a, a very strong deterrent. Um, and this allows the state uh, to remake this region and its people at will without any sort of resistance, while at the same time leaving uh, kind of the uh, um, enough doubt and illusion of volunteerism. Um, and some of the things that the state's been doing is uh, basically involving forced or coerced assimilation. Uh, there's lots of different ways this is done. It's done through the act of suppression of Uyghur cultural expressions and language uh, for out those outside institutions. There's a program of coercive mixed ethnic marriages we're essentially turning down the hand in marriage of somebody from a different religion or ethnic group can be considered a sign of extremism. Increased mandatory Chinese language in schools and in particular a proliferation of boarding schools for children and uh, coerced participation in Han holiday celebrations and suppression of Uyghur holidays. Um, and we, we also see some transformation of village life through these, um, these different policies. Uh, there's also uh, attempts to remove signs of, of Uyghur cultural legacy in the region. <clears throat> and um, this involves both demolishing or repurposing mosques for tourism and uh, destroying religious shrines as the, the picture from the previous slide shows. Uh, it also has involved destroying uh, civilian cemeteries. And, and it's interesting, recent journalist, uh, journalistic reports from the region, uh, it's only been this spring where international journalists have sort of returned to the region. They were able to um, verify a lot of the destruction of and, and repurposing of mosques and the destruction of uh, religious shrines, the destruction of civilian cemeteries. Uh, the removal of traditional architecture, the demolishing of entire Uyghur villages for new developments and so on. And uh, in addition, I think a very important aspect of this complex of policies is the large coerced residential labor programs, um, which is one of the things that gets this entire crisis involved in global supply chains. Um, so, there, there's been documented that some people have been um, graduated from re-education camps and sent into these programs. But it's important to note that these programs are also 
um, active among rural residents uh, writ large. And um, there's an attempt to essentially bring uh, Uyghur farmers out of their villages and proletarize them into factory workers. Um, and you know, refusal to participate in these programs essentially, again, can be uh, seen as a uh, sign of extremism. And there's restricted movement in these factory complexes. Uh, it includes uh, Chinese language classes and classes on Communist Party ideology. Uh, the people working in the factories are forced to work in a Chinese language milieu with Han supervisors, and many of them are being uh, displaced from their hometowns and, and the, the Uyghur region entirely and put into inner China. And meanwhile, um, families with children um, have to send their children to boarding schools often. Um, and uh, the, the other thing that's, that's kind of ar arisen over the last year is um, that that labor program, uh, there's lots of evidence of policy papers talking about it very much as a, a, an intentional displacement strategy. And another part of that displacement strategy is reducing Uyghur population density. And one of the reasons uh, it seems that the Communist Party is particularly concerned about Uyghur births is there's an understanding that the Uyghur region is environmentally fragile and cannot hold um, more population than it actually has now. So a strategy of trying to bring a Han dominant population to the region can't work by migration alone. Um, and uh, there's active measures uh, to increase uh, IUD placement and sterilization and abortions uh, among Uyghur women. Uyghur women are subjected to constant pregnancy, pregnancy tests by state entities. And as a result, birth rates in the Uyghur majority southern areas of the region have dropped a dramatic um, degree over 70% over between 2015 and 2018. Um, and several, uh, several women who've been in internment camps have talked about um, being sterilized while in the camps. Um, all of these things to me, when I, when I look at them as a complex of policies, they seem very much like what we've seen happen to indigenous peoples in the context of settler colonialism which is why I, I use the term cultural genocide to refer to what's happening to the Uyghurs, uh, which is a term often used uh, with regard to indigenous peoples and their displacement and marginalization and the reduction of their population. Uh, that term is not mentioned, view this as genocide, which is something I don't really feel I have uh, the knowledge to comment on. Uh, but I think as an anthropologist, it seems very, similar to what happened to Native Americans, what happened to Aboriginal peoples in Australasia in, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And um, this makes it seem very much like a project of settler colonialism. And in this sense, it's more, the policies being employed are more about the region in, in many ways than they are about the Uyghurs and others um, who view that region as their homeland. 
That said, in order to remove and destroy the culture and identity of the people living in the region, uh, there, there must be a dehumanization um, to, to justify the things that, that are happening. But I see that the main aim is to remake this region as an integral and generic part of the People's Republic of China and um, a part of a society steeped in Han-based culture. Uh, most likely for service as a major hub in the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and you can see why that would be very important given the geographical location of this region. Uh, I think most people here would be very familiar with this geography, but you can see that this region is both on the periphery of Chinese, um, the, the Chinese civilization or Chinese nation state while also being uh, intimately interlocked with Central Asia in all, all points further west. Um, now, I, I, when I talk about um, what, what is happening as a phenomenon of settler colonization, um, I'm often uh, met with uh, kind of skepticism from people who say, well, this region was conquered a long time ago by China, why would this uh, colonization still be happening? Um, and uh, I think there's many reasons for this. Um, in many ways, uh, this region had been parts of different empires historically, it had been a crossroads of civilizations. Um, and in the modern period, it's really um, only in the 1750s when the Qing Empire uh, conquers it, that it becomes part of China. But even then, for the first century, it's more of a dependency than a colony. Um, and then in the 1860s, the Qing Empire loses control of the region, comes back in the 1870s and the 80s, and it establishes control and really makes it much more of a colony driven by a Confucian uh, civilizing mission. And uh, there's a recent book by Eric Schlussel that talks about this period and the degree to which it, it mimics a lot of the uh, same uh, phenomena you see in European colonization at that time in the late um, 19th century. After the fall of the Qing Empire and, and until 1949, it's loosely controlled by central Chinese states uh, and it's ruled in a variety of manners by various Han governors. Uh, in fact, there's one period there where the Han governor actually has more allegiance to Moscow than to Nanjing, and uh, it essentially becomes kind of a, a um, client state of the Soviet Union during the 1930s. Um, it's, uh, for those of you who are interested in trying to understand how um, the People's Republic of China has related to this region. There's a there's a new book by David Tobin uh, that I'm I'm in the midst of reading uh, to try to do a review of, um, who really does a great job of expressing how there's this contradiction in the People's Republic of China's attitude towards this region. Um, it's it's both a part of this ideal of a socialist multi-ethnic state, um, both the region and the people. But at the same time, there's this persistent kind of trope of it being a frontier of Chinese civilization 
inhabited by barbarians. And I think it, it, this, this is a very difficult marriage, but has a lot to do with why this region has not been more fully integrated until recently. And through the 1970s, it was really treated as a frontier in buffer zone against Soviet influence. In fact, you know, in the Cultural Revolution, for example, <coughs> the region was kind of spared some of the biggest excesses of the policies of that time um, to ensure that there was stability in the region and that the Soviet Union could not um, try to exploit any kind of instability. And then in the 1980s, there's a brief experimentation, I think, of, of the party during this, this um, kind of liberalization period of trying to find a way to uh, integrate these people uh, and this region as part of a multi-ethnic, multicultural state. Um, and that starts to be rolled back um, with the Tiananmen Square massacres, with um, the fall of the Soviet Union as well. And so in the 1990s, we, we really see an urgency uh, in terms of the Chinese party state to integrate this region uh, more robustly. And um, at the same time, this integration over the last 30 years has been very difficult and it's been plagued by this, this same problem of this contradiction in the way China sees this region. Um, and I, I talk about <coughs> that in my book, <coughs> excuse me, um, in terms of being kind of a, uh, uh, a central contradiction of colonialism where the colonizing power wants to assimilate um, the colonized, but at the same time can never accept them fully into the state. And that I think uh, creates a lot of the tension that has bubbled up over um, the region in the last uh, four years. Um, at the same time, uh, it's interesting to, to view that period in the context of what was happening globally, and in particular uh, in the context of the global war on terror. Um, so first of all, you know, I think that um, the, the idea in terms of the, the Communist Party's idea of, of how to integrate this region was very modernist and was very related to their, their Marxist roots, or at least the Chinese uh, kind of interpretation of Marxism. And there was a belief that, you know, if, if this area was developed, then the indigenous population would gratefully become loyal servants of uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese state. But in fact, a lot of the development that starts in the 90s and then becomes more intense in the 2000s actually uh, creates more resistance from the local population that see it as attempts to encroach on their homeland. Um, and this, this created a situation, I think, where um, we see, if you look at the, the period starting with um, particularly the beginning of the 2000s, you see these attempts to solve the Xinjiang problem as the, the party uh, articulates it through development, you know, through this very kind of Marxist notion that um, there's really an economic structure behind all 
ideological superstructures that ethnic allegiance will dissipate with economic um, economic uh, prosperity. Um, and then you see it increasingly become more about security um, as, as the development only creates more resistance. And um, I think that as a result, you, you start to see the state demonize and dehumanize the local populations, in particular the Uyghurs, which are really the target of the state, um, seen as the most resistant to encroachment, development in the region, and, and Han in migration. And this uh, increasingly creates this idea of Uyghurs as a dangerous security threat. And that eventually in the 2000s really becomes articulated through counterterrorism discourse. Um, and it's counterterrorism that begins to justify um, the reason behind what's been going on the last four years to dismantle these people's um, social capital, to remove them from their land, to sever their connection with the land, destroy their culture and essentially marginalize them. And in many ways, I think this is an interesting point because in the 19th and early 20th centuries, settler colonialism usually um, engaged with a narrative of civilizing savages to justify such actions that would essentially serve to remove and destroy indigenous peoples. But in the PRC today, we see um, the use of a counterterrorism narrative for the same purpose, essentially um, the need to de-radicalize extremists. So um, I, I often think about this infamous quote from a, a Native American um, residential school in the United States, the director of the school um, said that we must kill the Indian in him, meaning the student and save the man. And, and I think really what we see um, in the policies of the Chinese government in the Uyghur region right now is an attempt to kill the Uyghur in the people and save the people. Um, and so it's this, this interesting juxtaposition of, uh, you know, savages being extremists and terrorists, which I think uh, the global discourse um, led by the US um, makes, makes a very easy transition um, and instead of civilizing, um, the, the, the goal is de-radicalization. So how did the savages of the 19th and early 20th century colonialism turn into the terrorist of 21st century colonialism? And I think it's important to note that, um, you know, you, you can use terms like colonialism to uh, talk about um, the commonalities along various phenomena internationally. But um, the devil is always in the details when you're looking at a specific situation. And the specific situation um, in terms of the Uyghur region has a lot to do with, I think also uh, the Chinese nation building um, uh, process and project. Uh, and part of that is how the Chinese government defines people on the periphery like the Uyghurs. Um, and I think that when 9-11 happened, it was, it was, it provided an opportunistic, um, it, it created an opportunity to shift uh, 
the discourse that the state had been using for thinking about these people to something that was more accepted internationally, um, but elicited an equally, if not more violent response. So almost immediately after the 9-11 attacks, um, to try to link Uyghurs to, um, to uh, the global war on terror. And I think it's, it's important to understand, and we're, we're far enough away, we're almost, we're gonna be 20 years away from 9-11 very shortly. It's important to understand how much that has uh, influenced uh, global discourses about difference, about state actors and non-state actors and so on. Um, the, the global war on terror portrayed terrorists as evil and danger incarnate and um, it, use that as a justification to suspend the, hu the human rights of anybody labeled such. You know, so the Guantanamo Bay detention facilities are a perfect example of this. Um, the U.S. felt no need to um, officially uh, convict people or call them prisoners of war because they were terrorists. They were just had to be contained. Um, and also, as I think, because terrorists were non-state actors, it was assumed that waging a war against them did not require adhering to any internationally accepted rules between states. Um, but the thing that really surprised me when I was looking at this question was that uh, even though we've been uh, involved in a global war against terrorism for two decades, there is no internationally accepted definition of what is a terrorist. And this essentially has given, I think, a free hand for various states to label different domestic opponents, international opponents as terrorists, uh, in particular, if they're Muslim. And it also leads to, of course, this, this um, proliferation of Islamophobia, where <coughs> the idea that terrorism is essentially linked to the phenomenon of Islam itself. Um, and entire Muslim populations can kind of be targeted as extremists with sympathy for terrorism. Um, and uh, to understand why that provided an opportunity for the Chinese Communist Party in 2001-2002, one has to look at what the Chinese government was already thinking about Uyghurs and other indigenous peoples in this region in the 1990s. So the 1990s, as I mentioned before, begins with um, the Tiananmen Square massacre, but then it quickly is followed by the fall of the Soviet Union. And the People's Republic of China was very concerned that it may face the same sort of uh, dissolution that the Soviet Union faced. And as a result, it became obsessed with um, the issue of separatism on the periphery. And in particular, these areas, uh, and I would, I would say that, that the Uyghur region, just like Tibet and Mongolia, has this, this ambiguous relationship with China where um, the, Chi the Chinese state on the one hand tries to suggest that these regions are, have always been part of a multinational state uh, or even civilization, but at the same time 
uh, it views these regions as the periphery, a frontier of civilization and um, inhabited by barbarians. So in that context, um, there, were, there were significant state campaigns throughout the 1990s, often referred to as strike hard campaigns, <clears throat> that sought to um, target Uyghurs suspected of disloyalty to the state, um, framing them as separatists, people who wanted to separate from China. And in addition to targeting intellectuals assumed to be nationalists, these campaigns also went after uh, religious Uyghurs. Uh, the state felt very uncomfortable with the idea, uh, even, even before 9-11, of uh, a group of people who already were seen as outsiders within the state um, as being loyal to a religion uh, such as Islam. Um, and this really throughout the 90s created a standoff between Uyghurs and the state and, and in, that included isolated instances of violence in the region at that time usually played down by um, state officials in an effort to suggest that there was only limited discontent that most people were happy um, but it was also important to note that there's no evidence that this, these limited um, instances of violence actually uh, had any sort of organized uh, insurgency behind them. They're mostly, um, mostly spontaneous instances, uh, mostly targeting law enforcement um, and uh, not having any group claiming responsibility and so on. But um, after 9-11, the PRC issues a series of white papers that claim it faces a serious terrorist threat from Uyghurs that is linked to Osama bin Laden. It, it names a litany of Uyghur diaspora organizations in Europe, Central Asia, and Turkey as being part of this uh, terrorist network, the Eastern Turkestan Terrorist Forces. And it also includes a list of 200 violent instances that took place in the Uyghur region during the 1990s, claiming they were all perpetrated by this amorphous terrorist network. Um, and initially, the international community kind of dismissed these claims. Uh, but suddenly, in the summer of 2002, when the US State Department um, decide, decides to recognize one group uh, in these white papers as a terrorist organization, the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement, um, that changes, uh, I think, the dynamic significantly because it provides international um, connection to these claims. And the US also helps the PRC uh, and sponsors, um, a, bill, uh, sponsors a, a motion at the UN Security Council along with Kyrgyzstan to have this ETIM group recognized on the U UN consolidated list of terrorist organizations linked with Al-Qaeda um, and uh, the Taliban. And, and probably uh, most ominously, the, the State Department announcement suggests that all these 200 violent incidents in the 1990s, which the Chinese state had actually said was the work of multiple diaspora groups, 
they all attribute the it the State Department attributes them all to this group ETIM, which um, you know frankly no experts in Central Asia or the Uyghurs or in China had ever heard of this group prior to that. So a, a lot of my book tries to investigate these claims because I think they've been really important to um, what has unfolded in this region since. Um, and um, it turns out that there was a group in Afghanistan. Um, it didn't call itself the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement um, that existed between 1998 and 2003. Um, but this group um, was very small, under-resourced, um, and uh, it was more a vision of one person, this person, Hassan Masoom, pictured here, um, who wanted to create a religiously inspired war of independence um, in the Uyghur homeland. And there's no evidence to support that it had support from um, Al-Qaeda. And in fact, there's some evidence that the Taliban held the group in check at China's behest. Um, and probably most importantly, there's no evidence that this, this group or, or those associated with it had ever carried out any violence anywhere, let alone in China, let alone uh, 200 incidents during the 1990s in the Uyghur region. And assassination ends with the death of its leader at the hands of the Pakistani military in 2003. And just a year before that, uh, it's it's useful to note that he calls into Radio Free uh, Radio Free Asia's Uyghur service and uh, condemns the 9/11 attacks and asserts that uh, he has no links with Al Qaeda. Um, and and at this time, there's no there's really no no reported um, violence happening in the Uyghur region, um, and that's true. Uh, through 2008-9. Um, in 2008, another group emerges uh, in diaspora among jihadist groups, this time in Waziristan, calling itself the Turkestan Islamic Party uh, under this person, Abdul Haq, who as far as we know is still um, alive. Um, and it threatens the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And um, it, it claims to be the inheritor of Hassan Masoom's vision, um, but there's no evidence that the people involved in this group, which seems to be a very small group in Waziristan, um, were associated with Hassan Masoom earlier in Afghanistan. Um, there's, uh, it becomes very famous because of uh, the videos it makes about the Beijing Olympics, but there's no real violence around the Beijing Olympics uh, that looks like terrorism. There's a couple violent instances uh, in the Uyghur region, um, but those uh, seem, they're likely more attributed to the tension in the region as, as the government securitized it around the Olympics than um, any sort of planned uh, political violence by this Turkestan Islamic party. And through 2013, there's almost no evidence that this group has any capacity to threaten China. There's, there's no evidence that it, it doesn't, it makes a lot of videos. It becomes a prolific video maker threatening the Chinese government. And whenever there's a violent event in China, um, it 
provides a video where it congratulates Uyghurs who are allegedly involved in this violence, but it does not claim credit for it. Um, and as far as I, I can tell, this group was essentially uh, a handful of Uyghurs working with foreign fighters in Waziristan um, and making videos threatening uh, the Chinese government, um, but had no uh, real threat inside um, the Uyghur region. Now, it's important to note that in 2013, um, the Turkestan Islamic Party changes uh, quite a bit because it starts uh, emerging in Syria, um, separate from the group that was in Waziristan that has um, allegedly since migrated into Afghanistan. Um, but the Turkestan Islamic Party in Syria actually has significant fighters and they're one of the last groups in Idlib, Syria to this day. And they benefited from uh, the mass migration of Uyghurs who leave the region after the 2009 Urumqi riots and the crackdown that follows those riots. Um, I've, I've met several people who, who were in Syria. Um, most of them came via Turkey and there seems to be some evidence that the Turkish government may have helped facilitate that. Uh, it's not clear how much uh, patronage can be um, attributed to the, the Turkish government for this group in Syria, um, but it's certainly um, further and further away uh, from Al-Qaeda. Um, and um, I think that the most important aspect about this group is there's no evidence that it's ever been able to carry out any violence either in China or potentially even against Chinese interests. There's a very um, um, murky uh, event that happens in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, uh, where a Uyghur who was allegedly in Syria tries to attack the Chinese embassy. But um, there's not a lot of uh, definitive information about that. And the Turkestan Islamic Party never talks about it in any of their videos. So I think what's important is the impact of this narrative um, is that initially it, it just becomes a change in discourse from uh, that of separatist. Um, and until 2009, there's, there's very little, if any, um, violence reported in the Uyghur region. Um, and um, there's much, really that first decade, 2002 to 2009, is really more about development in the region. There, there are uh, programs to incentivize Uyghurs to uh, adopt um, Han cultural ideals in the Chinese language through education and job programs. There's major development happening in the region uh, and there's increased Han uh, migration to the region, but there's nothing coming out of the Chinese government suggesting that there's a terrorist threat. Um, now things change quite a bit in the summer of 2009 when there's massive ethnic riots that break out in the capital city of the region of Rumshi, but this has nothing to do with terrorism. Um, it starts after uh, the preceding days, several Uyghur workers were killed in a factory in Southern China. Um, and uh, they were, the, the suggestion was that um, rumors had been on the internet that Uyghur men 
had raped Han women in the factory. And this led to kind of a pogrom against Uyghur workers. Um, and there was not much done to serve justice. And so there was a protest plan um, by university students calling for justice. And security forces essentially cracked down on this protest violently. And what happens after that is, is kind of unclear, but you, it, it merges into street violence and ethnic violence for three days, essentially, including both Uyghur on Han violence and Han on Uyghur violence. Um, but it's very obvious this has nothing to do with terrorism. It's spontaneous, it's passionate explosion um, of, of anger and violence that I think is from the tension of development and migration and has nothing to do with Islam, um, extremism or terrorism. But essentially after that, the state blames Uyghurs and they blame in particular uh, religious Uyghurs in the, the rural South. Um, and uh, there's a very significant crackdown in this region um, that essentially puts religious Uyghurs under house arrest. Uh, scores of people disappear, um, uh, hundreds are arrested. Um, and as, as that is unfolding over a year's time, it starts to be met with resistance from Uyghurs. And uh, the state, every time this happens, characterizes it as terrorism. And this begins a cycle of escalating violent repression, resistance repression going around and um, uh, building on itself. Uh, and it's basically between law enforcement and rural Uyghurs. Um, and things begin to fall apart um, after that, we start to see more um, of this violence proliferate. Uh, more of it seems to be political violence from the side of the Uyghurs. And there's, there's probably four instances um, of violence that could essentially be characterized as terrorism um, that happened in 2013-2014. Um, and at the same time, you have a mass uh, exodus of Uyghurs, especially um, from the south of the region, uh, who are under significant pressure from security and development and migration. Um, and thousands of Uyghurs uh, flee using borders into Southeast Asia and human trafficking networks and as, with the hopes of getting to Turkey. And some of these there are, are diverted into Syria. Um, so 2014, I really see as probably more important um, than we, we realize today um, because the state begins this people's war on terror, which seems to be the prelude to what's happening now. Um, this particularly targets rural and religious communities, um, but it generally limits public expressions of religiosity. And, and it's had less attention because I think Uyghur elites were not really targeted in this, uh, with the exception of some very, um, uh, very important examples, such as the uh, life sentencing given to the economist Ilham Tokti, um, who was accused of being a separatist uh, at this time. But the infrastructure for what's about to happen gets put in place uh, already in 2014. It essentially, 
regulations criminalizing many aspects of Islamic practice outside of state-sponsored religious institutions. You start to have um, the beginning of the mass surveillance system. And you also have the procurement for this database happening. And you, you start to see several efforts by the state to beta, beta test many different models of re-education. Um, and then 2017 to the present, we essentially have uh, the situation that we see now. And that really begins um, with a, a campaign against uh, Uyghur party officials um, and secular intellectuals, university professors and so on, uh, claiming that they are two-faced um, party members, that they are tacitly supporting terrorism and extremism or not opposing it enough. But um, at the same time is when we start to see people disappearing into the mass internment re-education camps. So in conclusion, I believe that the actual motivations for what the PRC is doing to Uyghurs and other indigenous peoples in the region is about development and the settlement of the Uyghur homeland uh, by Han, particularly in its southern reaches. But the global war on terror helped to accelerate the state's tactics for doing this. Um, and uh, it, it especially related to how um, you could dehumanize the indigenous people to justify their removal. Uh, and we see that kind of happen over time, beginning in 2002, when this, this uh, terrorist group is recognized by the US and the UN, you start to see the shift from the 1990s when Uyghurs were targeted as nationalist or separatist um, and being an obstacle to these goals, then getting reframed as terrorist and extremist, but only really talking about a, a small number of those people. Um, then moving towards Islam as the vehicle of extremism and terrorism and ending up essentially by profiling the entire Uyghur and related peoples um, and their entire collective identity as um, being a force against uh, state plans. And I think it's just the, the last point I wanna make is that um, even though I think that uh, terrorism is not why this is happening, um, I think that many officials, particularly lower level officials, um, have, have internalized that narrative. And this is very much like you would see European colonialists in the 19th and early 20th century internalizing uh, the civilizing mission. And that's partly because you have already um, the foundations laid for uh, the idea that these people are inferior uh, along some sort of ethnic hierarchy. Um, and uh, therefore, I refer to this, um, what's happening now, um, not only as a cultural genocide, um, but a cultural genocide in the name of counterterrorism. <laughs>